Uh, well, friends, I don't know whether you ate any strawberries this week, but uh, no doubt you would have seen in the news the extraordinary crisis of faith in the strawberry industry. Uh, it all started when some pe people found these tiny little needles in their strawberries. Uh, the word then started to spread, and the result was this great loss of faith in the strawberry industry. And uh, you may have seen those heartbreaking images of millions and millions of strawberries just being dumped because they uh, couldn't be sold. Now, uh, this morning, I want us to think about a crisis of faith uh, of a slightly different nature. I want us to think about the crisis of faith that we might have in the person of Jesus himself. Uh, have you ever had a crisis of faith in Jesus? Perhaps you've gone through periods of doubt in your life where you have, just in the quietness of your mind, thought to yourself, uh, is Jesus really God's king who has come to rule this world? Perhaps you've doubted whether Jesus really is that one who is worthy of your life and my life. Have you ever had doubts about Jesus? Uh, now, as Will mentioned, uh, we've been working our way through Matthew's Gospel over the last little while. Uh, if you remember, uh, just cast your minds back. In chapters 8 to 9, uh, we've seen the miraculous works of Jesus as he heals the sick and calms the storm and even raises the dead. Uh, we've seen in chapter 10, uh, Jesus instructing his disciples about uh, what it looks like to be genuine disciples and what they can expect uh, if they follow him. But today, uh, we're beginning a new section uh, of Matthew's Gospel in chapters 11 to 12, where we see, uh, as the Gospel goes out to Israel, we see the different responses that people have towards Jesus. And the first response that we see there is the response of doubt. Uh, the source of that doubt, I think you can see, in chapter 11, verse 12. Uh, have a look with me at chapter 11, verse 12, which I think is a key verse in our passage. Uh, Jesus says there, From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by storm. Now, uh, this is a notoriously difficult uh, verse to understand, actually. Um, if you have a look at the first half of the verse, Jesus seems to be speaking about uh, the violence that is done to the kingdom of heaven. He speaks about the kingdom of heaven suffering violence. But uh, if you have a look closely, uh, most of you, I'm guessing, will have a little footnote um, to that particular verse. Um, does everyone have a footnote in their Bibles? Uh, what does the footnote say? Can somebody call it out? Has been coming violently. And so um, I actually think that's the better reading uh, of this verse. It's not talking about the violence that is done to the kingdom of heaven, but it is talking about the kingdom of heaven coming violently. Uh, Jesus, of course, is not saying here that the, that the kingdom is going to spread through physical violence. But I think he is, he is saying that the kingdom of God, heaven 
is forcefully, powerfully um, advancing all over the world. Uh, now, friends, uh, I understand that you may not feel like this at times, and, and I may not feel like this at times, but uh, uh, I think that's just because we live in the West, and the growth of Christianity has now shifted from the West, the Western world, uh, to places like Africa and Asia and uh, South America. Uh, but in actual fact, all over the world, the kingdom of heaven is forcefully advancing as people bow the knee to the rule of King Jesus. Uh, even in our church, uh, over the past little while, we've seen a steady stream of people uh, bowing the knee to Jesus and coming to faith in his kingship. Uh, the kingdom of heaven advances. And yet, uh, you can see there that this is not the entire picture for uh, verse 12 ends by saying that the violent take the kingdom of heaven by force. You know, in other words, even as the kingdom of heaven is, is powerfully advancing and spreading, well, it is met with violence. Uh, think about what is happening in northern Nigeria, for example. Uh, think about the ridicule that uh, uh, you and I face by other people and perhaps in our families. Uh, think about the kind of opposition there is in our places of work and in our offices to the person of the Lord Jesus. Uh, our experience of the kingdom of heaven in this world is a mixed bag. <laughs> there are successes and there are what are apparent failures. And so sometimes these things can cause us to doubt whether Jesus really is the king who has come to rule this world. How can life be so mixed if Jesus really is the king that has come, we might ask? Well, uh, if you've ever had doubts about Jesus, then uh, I want to say that uh, you're in pretty good company, actually, because in our passage this morning, we are reintroduced to John the Baptist, who is having a, a crisis of faith. Uh, now, we've already met John the Baptist in chapter 3 uh, of Matthew's Gospel. Uh, John's job was to point people to the Messiah, to Jesus. And uh, if you remember, John uh, comes saying that when God comes into this world, uh, well, he is going to bring wrath against all his enemies. He was a fire and brimstone kind of preacher. And so what John does is that in view of that coming wrath, when God comes into this world, you need to get ready for that day. And so he urges the people to repent, to turn away from their sins, because that's the way of getting ready for that great day when God comes in judgment. It was an uncompromising message, and because it was so uncompromising, it was also a message that landed John in hot water. If you remember, John was the one who preached repentance to King Herod. For he, he publicly spoke out against Herod marrying the wife of his brother, Philip. And uh, we are told in chapter 4, verse 12, that this lands John in a, in a prison cell. Uh, furthermore, while he is still in prison, uh, John hears about the sort of things that Jesus has been doing 
the sort of things that we've been looking at over the past few, few weeks. And it seems that Jesus has forgotten all about the judgment bit. All he's been doing is healing the sick and raising the dead and preaching the good news. You can almost feel the doubts creeping into John's mind, can't you, as he sits in his dark prison cell. You can see his doubt there in uh, chapter 11, verse 2, as he sends his disciples to ask Jesus whether he really is God's king. Uh, Matthew reports in verse 2, Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come? Or shall we look for another? Are you really the one? Or should we expect someone else? It's a question that has been asked by every doubter ever since. Uh, Now, brothers and sisters, I just want to say that at this point, uh, the Bible never condones doubting. Uh, We've seen over and over again in Matthew's Gospel that Jesus praises those who have faith and trust in him, but he never praises doubt. And yet, it doesn't seem as though doubt is exactly the same thing as unbelief in Jesus. And we will see in today's passage that Jesus is always ready to gently deal with those who doubt. Uh, I think John here is the model doubter because uh, what he does with his doubt is very important. Notice that he takes it to Jesus. He takes his doubts through, via his disciples to the only one who can answer those doubts. And you know, often uh, when Christians go through periods of doubt, uh, it's very easy not to tell others about it, isn't it? Uh, perhaps it's because we think that you know, no one else is struggling with doubt and we feel a bit embarrassed at the prospect of being the only one. Uh, perhaps it's because we think that if we reveal that we are having serious doubts about Jesus, then it may disappoint other people at church. Uh, whatever the case may be, I think it's easy to just be silent and to sit and wallow in your doubts and gradually and slowly drift away from Jesus. But friends, I want you to see here that John not only shares his doubt with those who are close to him, but ultimately he wants to take his doubts to Jesus, the one who can help. And so if you are struggling with doubt at the moment, can I encourage you just to Talk to somebody about it. Um, Talk to someone who you trust, who you know will encourage you and pray with you and read God's word with you so that your doubts can be met with the person of the Lord Jesus Christ in his word. How then does Jesus answer John's doubts? How does Jesus answer John's doubts. Well, notice that it's not with a simple yes or no answer. But Jesus points uh, John to the miraculous works that he has been doing. Uh, It's as if Jesus is saying to John, look at the evidence. 
Look at the sorts of things I've been doing. Uh, let's pick it up from verse 4, chapter 11, verse 4. And Jesus answered them, that is John's disciples, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Uh, you see, Jesus here catalogues all the miracles, the miraculous works that we've already see, been seeing him do in chapters 8 to 9. Do you remember the two blind men who, who came up to Jesus only to have their sight restored? Do you remember the paralyzed man who was brought uh, by others on a stretcher to Jesus only to go home walking on his own two feet? Do you remember the leper who was as good as dead and cut off from the land of the living, being touched by a willing Jesus who heals him and restores him? Do you remember the demon-possessed man who was mute, who is brought to Jesus only to have the demon expelled and for his speech to be given back to him? Do you remember the ruler who comes to Jesus in sheer desperation because his precious little child has just died. And Jesus simply takes her by the hand and raises her up from death. Do you remember the good news being proclaimed to the poor, such as the tax, tax collector and other sinners? Uh, the poor in Matthew's Gospel are not the physically poor, but it's those who are living in this world that is under the shadow of death. It's poor sinners, people like you and me. You see, Jesus is saying to John, look at my miraculous works. Do they not suggest that I am God's king who has come to rule this world? But friends, it's a bit more than that because Jesus here is actually alluding to the Old Testament. Uh, he's alluding to the Old Testament book of Isaiah, which John the Baptist would have known intimately. Uh, if you have ever read through the book of Isaiah, you will know that at various points in the book, uh, there are passages uh, where Isaiah speaks about what will happen when God sends his king into the world to, to rule. Uh, one of those passages is the one we read earlier. And so uh, turn back with me to Isaiah 35, if you have your Bibles there. Uh, turn with me to Isaiah 35. It's on page uh, 595, and uh, we'll pick it up from verse 5. Isaiah 35, and uh, we'll pick it up from verse 5. Verse 5 says, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the years of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. You see what Isaiah, who is writing hundreds of years before Jesus, is saying here? These are the things you can expect to see when God's king comes to rule the world. And yet, did you notice that in our Matthew passage, Jesus does not mention something 
that is mentioned in Isaiah 35. Have a look at Isaiah 35 and see uh, what part of Isaiah 35 uh, Jesus does not mention. Uh, Perhaps you might uh, turn to your neighbour and have a bit of a chat. Uh, What part of Isaiah 35 does Jesus not mention? Well, he leaves out all the bits about judgment, doesn't he? (laughs) Um, In particular, look at uh, chapter 35, verse 4, which says, Isaiah 35, verse 4, where he says, Say to those who have an anxious heart, Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. In other words, Jesus does not mention uh, all the bits in Isaiah 35 and all the other bits in Isaiah that speak about God coming in judgment. It's not that Jesus does not believe in judgment, as we will see as Matthew's Gospel progresses, but what he is saying is that here is that God's wrath will come later. Now is actually the time, not for wrath, but for mercy and forgiveness and new life. Uh, you know, it's a bit like the gun amnesty that we had in uh, 2001 uh, after the terrible Port Arthur massacre. Uh, some of you are old enough to remember it. Uh, at the time, the government said... Now is the time, if you own an illegal gun or firearm, to bring it in and hand it in. There will be no questions asked, but now is the time to do it. You just have to come in, and there will be no penalties, and you will be forgiven. You will receive a full forgiveness. And yet, if you do not hand over your guns and the amnesty runs out, well then be prepared to face the full force of the law. That's what Jesus is saying here, isn't it? He's saying, John, God's wrath will come. But now is not that time. Now is the time for mercy and forgiveness and for new life for all those who turn back to God before that terrible day when God will bring his wrath upon this world against all those who oppose him. In effect, he's saying to John, mate, you've got your timing wrong. (laughs) Judgment is in the future. However, when when God's king comes to rule, he will not begin with judgment, but he will begin with mercy. But friends, here's the point. John is in doubt about whether Jesus really is God's king who has come into this world. Uh, He's going through a crisis of faith, and what does Jesus do? Well, he says, look at my miraculous works. Look at all the evidence that is before you. Do the things that I've been doing suggest to you that I am that king that God has promised? Uh, Perhaps if you are going through a period of doubt, uh, it might be actually a good exercise to read over uh, passages like Matthew 8 8 to 9 and just ask yourself, uh, if God's king were really to come into the world and begin to rule, are these the sorts of things that you would expect God's king to do? That's the first thing. 
However, it is also true that the miraculous works of Jesus will not convince everyone that Jesus is God's king. Uh, we've already seen, and we will continue to see in Matthew's Gospel, that some of the religious leaders, uh, such as the Pharisees, uh, look at Jesus' miraculous works, and they come to a completely opposite conclusion. They say that uh, he is not God's king, but he is actually acting um, with the power of Satan himself, or the devil. And so, uh, what Jesus says next is that the only thing that will convince us that Jesus is God's king who has come to rule the world is actually God's powerful word. The only thing that will convince us is God's powerful word. Uh, the key here is to understand what the word of God says about John the Baptist. Uh, that's why in the next part of the passage in, Matthew's, uh, in Matthew 11, from verse 7, You'll notice there that Jesus switches from speaking to John the Baptist, which we saw earlier, to speaking about John the Baptist uh, to the crowds that are around him. Now, the crowds knew that John the Baptist was a great prophet from God. Uh, that's why in chapter 3 we are told that a huge number of people went out into the wilderness to, to hear John preaching. You know, he wasn't a small scale kind of preacher. Uh, we're actually told that uh, the whole city of Jerusalem and the surrounding areas all went out into the desert to hear this man preaching. Why? Well, because they knew that he was a prophet from God. Uh, you might be a bit confused about the sorts of things that Jesus mentions in verses 7 to 8. Uh, but in verse 7, uh, when Jesus mentions a reed shaken by the wind. Um, he's talking metaphor metaphorically, I think, about the kind of person who is just blown about by public opinion. Uh, can you think of anyone like that? Uh, what are the modern-day examples of people who are blown about by public opinion? Politicians, perhaps? Uh, people are, are like, like that. Um, when Jesus mentions in verse 8, a man dressed in soft clothing, uh, he's speaking about the kind of person who is simply a puppet of another person. Uh, a bit like a, a butler, perhaps, who lives in, in, in the house of the king, uh, who is at the beck and call of some other person. In other words, what Jesus is saying here is that John is neither of these, these things. He's not a politician who is blown about by public opinion. He's not just a pub puppet with other people pulling on his strings. No, he is, a, he is a prophet who is bringing you the word of God. But here's the thing. What Jesus goes on to say is that God's word tells us that John is much more than a prophet. In fact, he is the greatest prophet there ever was because he's the last one among a long line of prophets that were to come before the coming of God's king. Uh, that's why uh, Jesus quotes from God's word in verse 10. Uh, in verse 10, he's quoting from Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, when he says, Behold, I will send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. 
You see, God's word in Malachi had been saying all along that there will be a final prophet in the long line of prophets who will arrive just before God's king arrives in the world. In fact, uh, a bit later on in Malachi, in Malachi chapter 4, verse 5, uh, Malachi explicitly gives this last prophet a name. Uh, does anyone remember what name he gives uh, to this last prophet in Malachi? Elijah. Uh, you can look it up in your own time, but he says this last um, prophet is going to be like Elijah, who was uh, uh, one of the great prophets of the Old Testament. And so when John the Baptist arrives on the scene wearing hairy clothing and uh, has a strange diet of locusts and wild honey, well, we're meant to sit up and take notice because uh, I don't know whether you've read uh, Two Kings before, but in Two Kings, this is exactly what Elijah looks like. And so that's why Jesus says in our passage this morning, in verse 13, that John the Baptist is this Elijah that Malachi was talking about. He is the final prophet. In verse 13, he says, For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Uh, some of you might know that um, I dabble in playing guitar, and uh, one of my all-time favourite uh, guitar heroes is Eric Clapton. Uh, one of the, the highlights of my life was going to see Eric Clapton live in concert uh, when he was out here uh, in Sydney a few years ago. Uh, I almost cried. But, uh, you know, when you go to a concert, what usually happens is that there is a supporting act, isn't there? Uh, there's this other musician who you don't quite know who they are, but they get up on the stage and they begin playing and, and singing. And it seems like their only real job <laughs> is to be the point of reference before the actual act <laughs> comes on the scene. Uh, when I saw, saw the supporting act, I knew that Eric Clapton was next. So this is why John the Baptist is the greatest prophet, for God's word tells us that he is the supporting act for God himself. After John will come God's king, who will bring his kingdom powerfully um, into the world. And yet, friends, here's the astonishing thing. Jesus says that those who believe God's word and begin to follow Jesus as God's king will be the ones who are greater than even John the Baptist, who he has said is the greatest man alive. Isn't that extraordinary? You can see it there in verse 11. Verse 11, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there, are, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than even he is. Friends, are you someone who has really been convinced in your heart that Jesus is God's king who has come to rule this world and you are so convinced 
that you have submitted to him, that you are actually allowing him to rule your life. Well, if you are, then Jesus says you are greater than even John the Baptist. How can this be? Well, John the Baptist could only point to the kingdom of heaven. You and I, if we are following Jesus as king, are actually in the kingdom. John the Baptist's life ended before he could see what God's king would do. You and I are privileged to have seen Jesus' greatest work, and that is, that is his sin-bearing death on the cross for sinners like you and me. What an extraordinary thing that we are in a position of greater privilege than the greatest of all prophets. But friends, there is finally a warning in this passage as well, isn't there? Uh, Jesus speaks about the generation of Israelites who will reject God's king. And he says that they are like children who will not be pleased with anything. Now, let's pick it up from verse 16. Verse 16. But, but to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. You see, Jesus is speaking of a generation of people who will not be pleased or satisfied with anything that God does. You know, they are like children who are unresponsive to anything. You play music for them and they won't dance. You play sad music for them and they won't cry. God sends John the Baptist to preach repentance and people do not mourn over their sins. God sends Jesus as his king to eat and drink with sinners because now is the time for mercy and forgiveness and new life. And yet people do not dance. In fact, they plot to get rid of him. Friends, it's uh, no different in our generation, isn't it? Uh, you see people, many people, who will not respond to anything that God does. They certainly will not respond by receiving Jesus as God and Saviour. Uh, they will reject Jesus' miraculous works. They will be blind to the evidence that is before them. They will be hardened towards God's word. They will know what God says and yet simply not obey him again and again and again. And Jesus warns us to not be like them. Uh, it is okay to doubt. Uh, even John the Baptist doubted and went through a crisis of faith 
as to whether Jesus really is God's king. But the key is not to just wallow in our doubts, for we can actually harden our heart as we doubt. But the key is to take these doubts to Jesus. Look at his miraculous works and ask yourself, are these the kinds of things that you would expect God to be doing if he came into this world? Do not harden your heart against God's word, but look to what he says in the Bible and be convinced that Jesus really is God's king who is worthy of your love and your trust and your obedience. If you know that you are living in sin at the moment, repent. Submit to him as your king. Know that he knows best. And the promise is there in verse 6, isn't it? For those who do not reject Jesus, but gladly receive him as king. Jesus says in verse 6, And blessed, happy, privileged, is the one who is not offended by me. Let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word to us this morning, and uh, we rejoice in the fact that your kingdom is powerfully advancing all over the world as the gospel is proclaimed and as more and more people bow the knee to King Jesus. And yet, Father, we also see great violence being done to your kingdom, not only in other parts of the world, uh, but also in our part of the world where we see opposition to the gospel all around us. And uh, we confess that we also uh, go through periods of doubt in our hearts about whether Jesus really is your king who has come to rule this world. But Father, we give you great thanks that Jesus is gentle with those who doubt. And so we pray that you would help us to be a people who can also gently encourage and help those who are doubting amongst us. If there are any of us who are going through doubt, even this morning, we pray that you would bring help and encouragement to them, uh, that you would give them the courage to speak to someone, but that ultimately that they would take these doubts to Jesus and that he will strengthen their faith through your word and by your spirit. My Father, we thank you this morning for the reminder that Jesus is your king who has come to bring mercy and forgiveness and the joy of a new and blessed life to us. And so we pray that we might not be the ones who harden our heart against him, but that you would help us to receive him gladly as our king and that we might know the joy of following him wholeheartedly and unreservedly in our lives. For we pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen.